0: And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive.
1: Welcome to Better to Speak the Podcast, where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Belton. This season we'll be exploring socio-political issues affecting black communities through the lens of young black storytellers and changemakers. This is the State of the Young Black Advocate. This is the first official episode of this season of the podcast since last episode, um, which I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to if you haven't Casey's story. I've been continuing my work to reimagine how this podcast could work, how Better to Speak um, in general could work when it comes to our content, our community advocacy programs, etc. Um, so that came with a brand new website that was for sure a labor of love. So if you have some time, definitely visit bettertospeak.org. One feature that will be coming will be transcriptions for all the episodes of the podcast. So those will be backlogged for all the previous episodes. And then we'll be doing transcriptions for new episodes moving forward to make sure that we're making the podcast as accessible as possible. As for the content of the podcast itself, we're continuing with a lot of really great interviews with my peers working across different industries and walks of life for Black Liberation. And that has been really, really good so far. The conversations and interviews that I have had. Um, really reimagine, like, the whole process of the podcast, really. Um, So instead of this very, like, rushed, I think on my end, it felt kind of transactional just in terms of, you know, me needing to get content done and um, not really having the time to connect with the people that I interview just on a human being basis this season i'm really taking the time to like set up conversations with everyone that i'm interviewing before we even sit down for an interview and so i have really enjoyed that process just in in terms of just slowing down the the production process of the podcast and i think it definitely has led to better conversations during the interview as well i thought i'd liven it up also by adding some new segments so if you remember the last episode i talked about how i had been watching a lot of tiktok during my break from better to speak and I've been trying to figure out how to incorporate more TikToks without having to actually make them as much because it's really not my ministry. Um, so with that, I'd like to introduce a segment called Let's TikTok About It, which is inspired by an old social media series I did called Talk About a Tuesday. And the goal of it is to feature different Black creators who are highlighting important topics on TikTok relevant to the topic of each episode.
0: When I was a little girl, I had to pick cotton. And... We got $3 if we picked 100 pounds of cotton that day. I just looked it up on the internet. And the farmer that was paying us $3 for 100 pounds, he would put it in a bale. It looked like this. But larger, of course. And he would sell that bale, which weighed... Anywhere from 495 pounds to 500 pounds of cotton. And he got a lot of money for that. If we picked a bale of cotton, say this was 500 pounds. So that's 500 times $3 for each pound. That's not a whole lot of money. My grandmother, she picked 200 pounds a day. So she got six effing dollars. I never could pick a hundred pounds in that one day. So I never got the effing three dollars. But just for you who want us to forget the things that the white people have done to us, forget it. I'm not forgetting it. I got some other stories to tell you, too.
1: So this first edition of Let's TikTok About It came from Rosetta Richardson, and I loved her TikTok because when I saw it, it was crazy to see an elder on this app where Gen Z and millennials have really been made to be the face of it on both the creator side as well as the consumer side. And even more so, it was really humbling to see this person talk about her experience with sharecropping, which is another thing that you wouldn't really think to see or hear about on TikTok. And so unfortunately, I went back to find her account to share it with y'all before um, recording today and I saw that she had apparently had it deleted because of that TikTok, which I downloaded that specific one a few weeks ago, which was from her old account. And so her new account tag is at Mama Richardson 74 and then she also has her cash app um, Money Grandmama if you feel moved to support her in that way and those um, will be in the in the show notes. And so now I'd like to move on to another segment, um, some brief announcements to let y'all know what's going on at Better to Speak. Um, So, of course, the podcast is a part of the work that we do. Um, We're also kicking off other programs and ways for folks to get involved from wherever you are um, outside of just this kind of, not asynchronous, but podcast that kind of lives on past, you know, our events and things like that. So in true Southern Baptist church fashion i'm gonna put in some church organs in post so this is like real you know real official announcements okay so i'm imagining the organs so this will all be a part of our strategic goals for 2022 which are now live on the website um, so our big three focus areas are content, community, and capacity. Essentially, in a nutshell, that will include producing the podcast along with editorial articles on Better to Speak's website, which is a newer venture that I'm really excited about. Um, a bunch of contributed articles from really good writers along with our um, growing our community base and team, our internal team. Um, so be sure to visit the website, bettertospeak.org, to learn more and also donate, which is the biggest way to support and sustain this work. So if you feel inclined to donate to Better to Speak, you can do so by sponsoring the podcast one time or on a monthly basis, and you can find the link to that by clicking the link at the bottom of the show notes, you can also rate and review the podcast, which is also a huge help to the show. So this episode, I spoke with Monet Lewis-Timmons, who is a PhD candidate and African-American public humanities fellow at the University of Delaware. She received her bachelor's in English and African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta and her research focuses on black women in the archives from the late 19th century to the early 20th century. Through her public humanities work, her research uncovers the fragments of these archives to reveal the complexities of black women's lives to make larger intervention about black women's lived experiences across space and time. This is Monet's story.
2: So I'm originally from the Bay Area, California. Uh, I was born and raised there. That's also where my family is from. Um, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 2014 to study at Emory University, where I double majored in English and African-American studies. And I am currently a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of Delaware, where I study 19th and 20th century Black women's literature and archives. Um, So I say all of that to say, (laughs) like, those are kind of the facts about me, but I think a lot of that my personal interests have to do with um, my own upbringing and my relationship with my mother and my grandmother. Um, I actually didn't realize how pivotal archives were in my life until I went to graduate school, um, but it allowed me to see how, even as a young girl, you know, my mother was already starting the this um, collecting practice of creating scrapbooks and photo albums around my little sister and my childhood. And um, that is kind of where I like to return to, or at least start as the foundation of who I am, but also what I'm studying. And so I really just want to shout out my mom um, and her practices of preserving and keeping photos and taking photos and even writing in her own diary as an early example of a lot of the work that I'm doing now.
1: I love that. And so um, you touched on my next question in terms of like, how do you, you know, get into researching Black women in the archives? Um, so where did you start and then how, you know, once you had this interest of wanting to get into documentation, archives, things like that, like what is the actual process of, of finding whatever you find in someone's archive?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so I will say my official like training, quote unquote, into archival research actually started in undergrad during my sophomore year at Emory. I was taking a class with Dr. Nagayati Warren, um, who is a black woman um, scholar who studies mainly Alice Walker. Um, And so Alice Walker's papers are actually at Emory's Rose Library, which is the archival repository for a lot of their collections. And part of that class, in addition to reading Alice Walker's novels, was to also utilize her own archive in the Rose Library. And so I remember really not knowing what I was looking for. I thought originally I was going to look at a lot of her materials pertaining to The Color Purple, um, some of her novels such as Meridian or The Third Life of Grange Copeland. Um, But interestingly enough, I was really fascinated by her activism and how she documented her activism and so for that class I decided to look at her activism against female genital mutilation um, which is a very deep and you know heavy topic but if you're familiar with the color purple, Um, you know that that kind of is a topic that is touched on in the novel. And so I was really interested in making these connections between her activism and her writing as a novelist. And um, from there, I was also able to explore um, letters that she had with other Black woman writers like Audre Lorde. And that was really fascinating. And it really just allowed me to ask all these different questions. Um, I think I've always been curious about where are the Black women, right? <laughs> um, growing up as a young Black girl, going to like public schooling where you're not really taught our history and you're really not taught um, about the Black woman figures in major history in general. And so. I was able to take that question and really dissect it into different pieces of okay, you know, where are the Black women, but also what are they saying and what are they doing in their personal lives that we often don't get to see in their published works or we're not learning about um, in history. And so, I will say that like just starting that journey, while it can be a little overwhelming to have so many materials, um, it does allow researchers and scholars to move in different directions and to ask different questions of these archives. Um, And so, yeah, that's essentially, I think, (laughs) where I got started. And from there, I think I've just been able to ask kind of similar questions um, based on other Black women's archives that I've been engaging with.
1: And um, I believe you said your, your thesis, but for your, your doctorate, it's about um, Alice Dunbar. Can you talk about like that yeah. work in that project?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of what I was learning at the Rose Library and looking at Alice Walker's archive actually helped me in looking at Alice Dunbar Nelson's archive. So Alice Dunbar Nelson, she was born 1875, just a generation after slavery had ended um, but she was a late 19th and early 20th century Black woman writer, educator, and journalist and activist. Um, so the name Dunbar may sound familiar if, you're, if you've ever heard of like Dunbar High School, right? Um, that's actually named after her first husband and poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, so a lot of times people kind of relate them together and really only look at Alice in relation to Paul. Um, And one of the things that I'm interested in is looking at her life and her own literary work outside of their relationship. Um, So I came to her archive during my first year of graduate school at the University of Delaware. And um, originally I actually didn't know that much information about her. Um, It took like other classmates and professors coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, I know that you're interested in black women's archives. Um, Special Collections here at the library actually has Alice Dunbar Nelson's archives. And so, ironically enough, for my first seminar paper that same semester, um, I decided to write about her. And originally, I was interested in um, what it meant for her to identify as a Creole Black woman, Um, you know, born and raised in Louisiana, um, educated there. She was also part of like this Creole elite society as well. Um, And I was wondering, like, how did she end up in Delaware, (laughs) right? How did she become an educator in Delaware? Um, And so that's where I started. But once I actually had time to sit with the papers and just really take my time um, with the materials, I was able to find so much more about her identity um, and so much more that removed her from this limited title as the wife of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And one of the most fascinating things I found in that collection were actually these series of letters um, from a woman named Edwina Cruz. So Edwina Cruz um, was Afro-Puerto Rican. She had immigrated to Wilmington um, in the late 19th century to become one of the first principals of Howard High. And Howard High is in Wilmington. It's still... um, a school today, Um, but at the time of its founding, it was the only Black school, or it was the only high school for Black students in the entire state. So it was very significant that you had a Black woman running it, and eventually Alice Dunbar-Nelson, when she moved to Wilmington, would become um, the chair of the English department there. So that's how their relationship and connection kind of merged together. But back to the letters, um, one of the most interesting things that I found in these materials um, was realizing that Edwina Cruz and Alice Dunbar Nelson had a romantic relationship. And I think while it was shocking, it also wasn't, right? So knowing that queerness has been a thing for centuries, it's nothing really new. Um, But what did it mean for these two women to communicate privately and use these letters as a space to express their love and care for one another. Um, And although they're never explicitly talking about sexual relationships or um, more intimate experiences, you can tell by the language that they're using that there is this level of care and respect and really just wanting to see the other woman do well in life. Um, And so it really allowed me to rethink how we imagine or how we talk about Black women's queer relationships, especially in the early 20th century where they're facing um, respectability politics and this pressure to live up to Victorian morals and standards. And so um, from there, you know, just kind of sitting and starting with that collection, I was able to expand my research on Alice Dunbar Nelson, and I'm very grateful for that.
1: Yeah, as you were mentioning about, like, respectability politics, and, and I think sometimes, um, I don't know, just think about a lot of, like, Black folks in general throughout history, where it's like, oh, we look back and we say, like, oh, we, you know, find out these details about this person that, you know, we have this, you know, kind of respectable image mm-hmm. of history. So I'm wondering if you have any additional thoughts about, like, what what do archives kind of reflect about, like, Black folks in their lives and that kind of thing? Like, how is that kind of reflected yeah. in maybe like letters or other things that you might find in an archive?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. And that's something that I always keep in the back of my mind when approaching these archives, especially when looking at, you know, these more private materials, like you said, the letters, the diary entries, because it really reveals and reminds us that these people are human, <laughs> you know, as much as I think during these times where there, were the, there was this pressure to, um have racial uplift and to present yourself as middle class and you know you aren't supposed to talk about sex like that right like there are just so many taboo subjects that i think really limited black people in their public lives but what is interesting about the archives is that it allows us to see how they navigated both and right so being this respectable figure within the public sphere whether you presented yourself as middle class, um, as having it all together, as being educated, as being religious. But then we see these letters and these diary entries where they're struggling financially. They're struggling with addictions and mental health. And so you see how they kind of, at least in Alice Dunbar Nelson's case, and I think this is true for a lot of early 20th century Black women in general. We see through their own private archives that that was their space where they could kind of navigate that and play with it and manipulate this respectable life and and public sphere in a way that gave them some freedom and some agency that they may not have been allowed to express um, outwardly.
1: And to pivot a little bit, I think also just thinking about archives and like the process of, you know, how do you end up with someone like, you know, like you said, these intimate materials like, you know, journal entries or things like that, because um, I think when someone may be living or like going through kind of the prime of their life, they're not thinking about like, oh, this journal entry is going to be like in a museum one day or in the library. <laughs> um, so can you talk about like how sometimes do these kind of materials end up in spaces like libraries or, um, or museums?
2: Another great question. Um, And that's pretty much, I think, what my dissertation project is focusing on now, kind of this life cycle of Black women's archives. So how does it go from the creator? And then, like you said, to these institutions and these repositories. Um, And just to use the example of Alice Dunbar Nelson again, um, one of the things I think of in her being the the creator of her archive is what it meant to keep all of these documents for decades. And she was someone who moved a lot, right? So she went from Louisiana to New York to Boston. She was in DC for a minute, um, in Wilmington, Delaware, and she passed away in Philadelphia. So I think about what it means to keep, collect, pack, and preserve, and then move all of these materials from state to state and city to city. Um, so I think that's an important concept with, within itself of thinking of, you know these these papers can't really get anywhere without someone being intentional about caring for them in their present state. Um, so I like to start with her. The other part of this cycle is thinking about the descendant and the keeper of these archives. And so in this case, it would be Alice Dunbar Nelson's niece, Pauline Young. Um, And Pauline Young is followed in her aunt's footsteps to become a historian, a librarian, and a scholar within her own right. Um, But after her aunt's passing in 1935, she was very adamant about keeping and protecting a lot of her aunt's records. Um, And part of that wasn't even just... Oh, just, you know, keeping these letters and photos and diary entries. Um, but Alice Dunbar Nelson also left in her will for Pauline Young to publish one of her manuscripts. Um, and it's called This Lofty Yoke." And this manuscript was actually dedicated to Edwina Cruz um, after her passing in 1930. Um, and so I say all of that to say that it really wouldn't be possible without kind of like this generational lineage of Black women caring for other Black women and in return caring for their materials. Um, And one of Pauline Young's efforts as well was, in addition to trying to publish this manuscript, was also thinking about um, how to sell the papers to a public institution and repository so that they'll be accessible for research. And one of the ways that she did this Um, is that she just wrote, like, different universities and museums from, like, the 1970s to the mid-1980s. Like, you know, just spending a decade convincing people that, hey, I have these papers of my aunt. They're very important. They would add value to your collection, um, and they're necessary, And one of the ways that she did this in writing these letters, and I think was very strategic for her to do, is that she always included Paul Lawrence Dunbar's name with Alice Dunbar Nelson, because she knew that people would be more familiar with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, Even though their marriage was tragic, and it didn't end well, um, I think it's very strategic to group them together so that that representation and that familiarity is there. And so in some cases, when she was writing these repositories, it worked, um, where people were like, okay, yeah, we know Paul Lawrence Dunbar, we're interested in looking more into the collection, Um, In other cases, though, there were some repositories that simply said, there's no space for these materials here. No one's interested in Black studies. There aren't any Black faculty members here. So that's even telling of, (laughs) you know, just thinking about institutions and what they value um, and what they see as worthy collections to have. Um, And I think another important part of her effort in trying to... um, have a repository acquire these papers was that she was very adamant about selling them and not donating them. Um, So a lot of repositories were saying, oh yeah, you know, you can simply do a donation, like that's fine. And she was like, no, I want monetary value, right? And it's not only just the monetary value of her aunt's life and work, but it's also monetary value for Pauline Young's labor, um, and what it meant for her to organize these papers and keep them for so long. And so um, I say that to say like that those connections are very important to think about how these um, papers end up at institutions. And so when she eventually decided to sell the papers to the University of Delaware in 1984, um, that was actually a really big step, not only because this connection that her and her aunt had to Delaware as a state, Um, but also in just finding a public repository that would take care of these papers um, and still continues to take care of those papers. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think of like, how do Black women's papers (laughs) get at repositories? And a lot of times it is um, up to the descendant. And then there's also the financial component that is considered as well.
1: And one thing you mentioned about a lot of these institutions and what they value. I think a lot about like what is that relationship or just given a lot of things throughout history where, you know, Black people's like thoughts and things are stolen and things like that. I can only, yes. think about like, you know, people's archives. And I think often about families. Um, there's an instance of this archive at KSU in mm-hmm. talking about Black life in uh, Aquath and Kennesaw, where I'm from. And talking about like, you know, regular families who aren't necessarily have these historical figures in their in their lineage, Um, but you're talking about people's like family photos or like, you know, mementos of their loved one. Um, So can you, is there anything that you found as far as like that relationship between institutions, like you mentioned about like, you know, them wanting um, Pauline Young to donate versus, you know, actually pay her for the value of, of what she found?
2: Yeah, that comes up a lot um in the in what I've seen of the correspondence and when she's writing these institutions. One of the examples I can think of is um In 1972, she actually um, gave some of the letters between Paul and Alice to the Ohio Historical Society. And the Ohio Historical Society was interested in these papers because Paul Lawrence Dunbar was from Ohio. So they felt it was significant to have some of his materials there. Um, However, what ended up happening was that the institution ended up microfilming Um, A lot of the materials and making copies and then selling them to researchers, which was not part of the loan agreement that Pauline Young had signed to. And so a lot of the correspondence in her own collection shows her kind of going back and forth. Um, seeking legal advice on what to do next, because she's like, I didn't agree to this. And if you are going to be selling copies of my aunt's letters, I want financial compensation for them. And so I think that that had a lot to do with her being so adamant about selling versus donating the papers um, just because of that. The case didn't go anywhere. Um, She was never compensated from the Ohio Ohio Historical Society um, for the selling of you know, the copies of these letters. Um, But I think at least from what I can see in her archive and like tracking her attitude about the collection more generally, I think that was the turning point for her where she realized, okay, I have to be very stern when I'm dealing with these institutions. I can't accept less than what you know, their worth. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with just the love and respect that she had for her aunt and just how close that they were. Um, So I think it was a way for her to also just memorialize her aunt as well. Um, But yeah, this issue of institutions kind of just taking advantage of these papers and either not caring for them enough or taking too long to process them, like that comes up so much Um, and it really is I mean it's disrespectful that's the word to to really use Um, it's disrespectful to the descendant but also to the creator of the archive and it does it doesn't do service also for like future researchers who are interested in looking at these materials as well
1: yeah for sure and then um Is there anything just in general, I know you talked about um, Alice Dunbar Nelson and that kind of what you found interesting about like going through her archives, but is there anything um, else that you have like found that you think has probably been like the most insightful or just like probably the biggest um, maybe thing that you didn't expect from getting into this work?
2: Mm, That's a great question too. I think on the topic of descendants and like respecting them and their wishes and the creator's wishes, um, there's always this issue of sexuality that I think comes up. And so one of the examples of this is um, when Pauline Young was in the process of kind of just organizing these papers, a scholar by the name of Akasha Gloria Hole Um, reached out to her and they ended up connecting and Akasha Gloria Hole was actually a professor at the University of Delaware in the 1980s and so she was aware of Paul Lawrence Dunbar um, but she had only recently learned about Pauline Young and the two women you know they had a, a really great relationship Pauline Young allowed her like access to the collection before it was purchased from anywhere and um whole really was gravitate she gravitated towards the diary um and had decided to work on publishing that and editing it um but in the midst of doing so that's when she kind of noticed these instances of dunbar nelson's sexuality um her alluding to her relationships with other women and when it came up in conversation with pauline young um she just wasn't having it she was like no that that wasn't my aunt like She didn't have romantic relationships with other women. I would have known I grew up with her. And I think while that may be true, um, we have to remember that Dunbar Nelson was a very complicated figure. And while she presented herself a certain way, she also hid many aspects of herself. And I can imagine her doing that from her own family, too. Um, So that became a tension between Akasha Gloria Hole and Pauline Young to the point where By the time the diary um, had been published in the 1980s, the two women had stopped talking completely. And so I think of instances like that in terms of the role of the scholar in respecting the descendant um, and just how that can kind of be complicated when as scholars and as researchers, we want to tell the full story. We want to um, tell the full narrative of someone, especially I think someone who was as hidden as Alice Dunbar Nelson. Um, But how does that become complicated when certain family members or descendants don't want that particular story told? Um, So I think about that with Alice Dunbar Nelson's archive. I also think about that with Hoyt Fuller's archive, um, which I believe is at the AUC Woodruff Library. But I think something similar came up in the processing of his collection, um, where he actually had told a few of the Black women archivists there to take out everything related to his sexuality. And I think it was just like one thing that was left that someone ended up finding and putting the pieces together. So it's like that, right? So like, I don't know, it just becomes complicated of like, okay, the creator the descendant doesn't want this certain thing included, or maybe they do. Um, but then it's also like we want to be able to honor their full selves and their full life um, without kind of crossing those boundaries of being disrespectful or like dishonoring that family as well. So, yeah, it's a very complicated subject that I think we see in a lot of 19th and 20th century archives in general, um, especially around sexuality.
1: And as we were talking about the role of the the researcher and the scholar and all of that, um, do you have any thoughts just about like what, maybe just about like the, the field or the industry, would you change or, like as you move forward in your own career, like that you, um, steps that you're taking to, you know, really ensure that that care is being taken care and attention when dealing with Black folks'
2: archives? Yeah, that's another great question. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it becomes so complicated, I think, when you're, like, institutionally based, too, right, because it's like having to follow certain protocols and rules, um, but also feeling like, okay, this is important to say or this is important to share, um, but then also having that care and respect, like you said, of Black people's lives, Um I think a lot of that comes down to the finding aids, really. And the finding aid is essentially a document that describes what's in the collection. Um, It usually lists like when it was acquired and by who, and then um, briefly lists like some of the materials that are found in the collection. So it will say like correspondence with so-and-so at this date. Um, But it provides that information for users of the archive beforehand so that they kind of know what they're looking for. Um, So that's something that I think in my own role as an archivist, I've been very intentional about because that's kind of the first document that represents the collection, right? And um, one of the things that I've been doing, um, at least at my time at the Rose Library, so last semester I was actually able to start processing the collection of a Black woman writer named J.J. Phillips, Um, who is actually still alive. She lives in Berkeley. Um, She published her first novel at the age of like 22 in 1966, and it's called Mojo Hand. Um, But I think like so many other Black women writers, she's kind of fallen out of the canon. Um, And even though she was still active, still an editor, still writing, um, she isn't as quote-unquote well-known. And so one of the things I was very intentional about when processing her collection was to really like go through it and comb through it um, and really like pay attention to her as a person, right? So I think that's part of the care aspect too. Um, I was very adamant about like not rushing that process. And even in writing the finding aid, I wanted to make sure that her bio was accurate. Um, So a lot of that was me just returning to what she had left in the archive to do that writing. Um, But also just to clear up a lot of things that I think have been misconstrued about her and her identity. Um, And so a way that I was able to do that was I simply like emailed her, (laughs) which it was very hard to find her email. I found it in a Medium blog post. But I was like, I really just want to talk to her because Like, I want her to have a say in this finding aid and in how she's represented in this archive. And so I think that's, like, one of the examples that I will continue to use moving forward in my career is, like, if possible, I want to be able to talk to the writer or the descendant or someone who can speak for this, someone who can look over the finding aid and really see... Um, okay, is this an accurate representation or not? And if not, what can we do to fix it? Or what materials in the collection should we be highlighting um, so that people are drawn to the collection? And so I think that's another act of care that I don't think is really normalized within the profession in terms of like the taking time of processing. And of course, that kind of has to do with sometimes there are certain deadlines to process a collection or it has to be out for the public at a certain time, but I think there are ways that we, as researchers and scholars and archivists, can still have that care and that patience um, when processing and when creating these finding aids.
1: And as we were talking, my next question was going to be about um, maybe the difference in taking that care when you know the person is still alive, or the person who archi- who created the archive is still alive, versus when you're interacting more with the descendant um, of a deceased person. And then I thought about um, like Henrietta Lacks, and I think it's a little bit different, but yes. kind of, situation of like, you know, her her family and everything that they've been through in terms of that whole situation. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts just about um, maybe just like dealing with, you know, descendants versus the person themselves. And um, like you mentioned about Pauline Young, like when there's, you know, contention about, okay they didn't know everything about the person versus like, you know, how someone wants themselves to be represented in an archive, Mm -hmm. Um, like kind of the differences there and like how you might approach that when you're researching.
2: Yeah, the Henrietta Lacks example is great. Um, And I mean, her descendants really did go through so much and I think they're continuing to go through so much too um, because in that sense, there's a complete erasure (laughs) of Henrietta Lacks herself, despite this ongoing medical use of her cells. And so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things is like to give descendants voice and a say, and to consult with them. Um, And there are ways to do that. Like, I think approach and care is even important in that too, right? Because you don't want to (laughs) come to descendants and be like, hey, I know everything about your ancestor. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not okay. Um, But I think there is a way, and this is eventually what Akasha Gloria Hull did when approaching Pauline Young, was by simply saying that, you know, I understand the time in which you're coming from. um, And also, there is a way that people can benefit from knowing this information today, and how that information will not misconstrue their literary work. It won't hurt their rep- their uh, reputation. Um, it won't make people stop reading their work. You know what I mean? So I think it's that also that reassurance, too, in terms of just reminding descendants that, you know, people will benefit from this information in a way that will not degrade the person or their name or their reputation. Um But, of course, that gets complicated, too, going back to the Henrietta Lacks example of, like, you don't want to exploit these people either because, I mean, they have a different type of relationship and care and love for these materials than we do as researchers. I mean, we are the outsider. That's just a fact, right? Um, So... Yeah, it's it's definitely complicated, and I'm not even sure I have a direct answer right now, but I think that is something that I keep in mind, even when talking about Alice Dunbar-Nelson. Um, I just always think of Pauline Young's labor, and I think, okay, how am I honoring that? How am I highlighting that? Um, and by doing that, I'm also thinking about Alice Dunbar-Nelson and her own collecting practices, um, so, yeah, I wish I had a more concrete answer <laughs> for this conversation, but I think it is something that more archivists should be aware of for sure.
1: Definitely. And um, I guess to start wrapping up, I want to say where are you exactly in your dissertation process? Or like, how does that exactly work in terms of the work that you've been doing? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so I actually defended my dissertation proposal last fall. Um, So that's when I got approved, and I was um, moved from a PhD student to a PhD candidate, and that makes me all but dissertation, or ABD, um, as we like to say, and so I'm at that phase right now. I've been doing ongoing research at the AUC Woodruff Library, looking at Pauline Young's uh, papers, and so that's been great just being back in Atlanta and having that connection. Um, And then I've also just been in conversation with different repositories, mainly the library at University of Delaware, in terms of securing an exhibition space. And so what I'm imagining for my dissertation project, and one of the things that I'm grateful for for my department, is that we aren't required to write a traditional manuscript dissertation. Um, They leave it open for us as long as you can argue for it in your proposal and it's like doable, um, you're good. And so one of the things, because I am interested in curatorial work and really just um, making these materials more accessible in a public space, um, is that I'm going to curate an exhibition thinking about this life cycle model that will highlight um, Alice Dunbar Nelson as the creator, creator of her archive. Pauline Young as the keeper of the archive, and then Akasha Gloria Hole as the scholar of the archive and kind of following this cyclical model to think about how um, Alison Barnelson's papers have kind of changed and um, moved around over time, right? And have allowed for more scholarship on her life and on her work. And so yeah, I'm really excited. I know it's it's been a lot of work so far, <laughs> I will admit that, but. It has allowed me to really think about my interest in more public humanities work um, and just this more archival work more generally and how can I merge those together? And so I'm hoping to to have uh, public events and more community-based events to get other people, especially other Black people, to think about how we can create our own archives today.
1: Right. And then one of my last questions was going to be about going back to what I mentioned earlier about like sometimes like you even mentioned for yourself, like archives kind of started just as like family scrapbooks. Um, mm-hmm. So what maybe advice or um, tips would you say to people kind of, you know, to maybe reframe like, okay, these are just family photos versus like actually keeping and, you know, preserving and maintaining those?
2: Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah. Um... I think one of the things I realized in just having conversations like with my mom and my grandmother about their own uh, like photo album practices was that, you know, they don't consider themselves archivists. (laughs) Like, you know, they're not considering themselves trained or any of that. Like they're just doing this because it feels good. And so I really try to reiterate that to people of just like, this is a way to, kind of create and preserve your own legacy. It doesn't have to mean that this is going to go to a museum or library or has to become public, but it does mean something when it can stay within the family and you can always reflect and look back on it and maybe eventually pass it down too. Um, And so I think one of the things that my work really calls for, and I think something that I really want to reiterate to public audiences is just to, just keep and document what you can now. And I think a lot of times we're already doing that (laughs) without even knowing it, whether it's like the thousands of photos we have saved in our phone or like, you know, the little journal we write in from time to time. You know, that is an archive um, and that is a way that we are leaving our legacy, either for ourselves or for future generations. And so I really encourage people to just document the now, whatever that looks like for them. Um, And it doesn't have to be neat, pretty and folders and boxes. Um, but it can just be what works for for you in the time being. And also just to ask questions of our, the elders in our lives. Um, I think that that's something I've really benefited from, just asking my granny questions of like, hey what was it like being a young girl, you know, and how did our family go from Terrell, Texas, to the Bay Area, California, you know, and surprisingly enough, elders like to talk about stuff like that, and they'll talk your head off uh, <laughs> if you let them, um, but I think even just giving someone else that space to talk about their life is also part of that documentation as well.
1: Yeah, I love that. I definitely went through that part, like, Asking my granny a bunch of different questions. And I think just like, you know, like you said, giving them the space to talk about their life, I think is always just like on your end, just learning and listening and things like that. So I definitely agree with that. And then is there any way, or how can listeners stay connected with you and your work and and things that you're doing?
2: Yeah, listeners can follow me on Twitter at Monet Timmons. That's where I put most of my scholarship and work. Um, So yeah, there will be updates on either talks I'm giving or, you know, dissertation updates, but yeah, that is the best way to follow me and my academic journey.
1: That's it for this episode. If you'd like to keep learning about black women and black people in the archives, check out the show notes for more resources, along with links to stay connected to Monet's work and her journey. And again, be sure to rate and review better to speak the podcast on whatever listening platform you're using right now and donate if you feel moved to in order to support and sustain the show. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.